Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. More than 70 lawsuits have been filed this year against Meta, Snap, TikTok and Google, centering on claims from adolescents and young adults who say their addiction to social media has caused them anxiety, depression, eating disorders and sleeplessness. Are Silicon Valley's algorithms causing real-world harm? The suits make claims of product liability that are new to social media, but echo past campaigns against tobacco companies and automobile manufacturers. Joining me is Joel Rosenblatt, Bloomberg Legal Reporter. So if you could start by telling us about some of the claims from the plaintiffs in a few of these suits. Sure. It's a range of people and claims, starting with kids who they're all spending uh, too much time on social media. That's the kind of underlying claim or the common thread through all of them. But different conditions are ascribed to that overuse. So ranging from depression, lack of sleep, sometimes uh, leading to depression. For girls, often the claims are about uh, body image and depression or extreme self-consciousness or, you know, just kind of feeling isolated or alienated because of the content that they're viewing. In the most extreme case, we're talking about suicides. And one of those cases was probably the most difficult interview I've ever done with a woman named Janet Majewski, whose daughter, Emily, committed suicide. And Janet Majewski, you know, is identifying and claiming that her daughter's overuse, the extreme amount of time she was spending on social media, led to her suicide, which she posted. She posted a video of the suicide, not not the actual act itself, but leading up to it on TikTok. And TikTok wouldn't, despite her pleas and the pleas of law enforcement who was investigating the suicide, TikTok wouldn't take that video down for days. So you get a range of problems from kind of, you know, mild, mild depression or alienation to, to suicide. And, you know, these cases are are really sad. So they're suing about content that's been created by third parties on TikTok or Meta or whatever. That's right. In a general sense, they're they're suing about kind of what's being seen there. But the lawsuit that I just mentioned, Janet Majewski's suit, what's different about hers and, and interesting is that she's targeting the algorithms that the platforms are using. So here we're talking about 
Meta, for example, you know, owner of Facebook and Instagram, and her suit is targeting those companies' use of the algorithms, not the content. So the companies for a long time have shielded themselves behind Section 230, a law that limits their liability for third-party content. So they can't be sued for the content of, of other companies or other content creators. And Janet Majewski is saying, I'm not suing over the actual content. I'm suing over the algorithms you're using that targeted my daughter. So these algorithms are you know, adjusted and can identify what users are interested in looking at and will provide or hint at the content based on what they're reading into an individual's use. Is this the first wave of lawsuits like this, or have there been lawsuits like this in the past that were dismissed, perhaps? There have been many, many lawsuits that have been dismissed. By and large, these platforms have have won these lawsuits. If you're asking, have these lawsuits identified the algorithm, targeted the algorithm, that's new. That's different. I don't know if this is the first suit, but it's the first suit. To do that in, in such detail that I'm aware of, this type of suit or this particular claim has an interesting foundation and has an interesting fact that it can point to, and that is the testimony of Francis Hogan, who was a product manager at Facebook, you may recall, who testified before Congress last year to reveal that Facebook was aware of, you know, had internal research showing that their algorithms were resulting in this kind of behavior, depression, anxiety among girls in particular, and continue to use it. So that's another thing that's very different about this lawsuit, that that they have an insider and they have her testimony, and who knows what else they can get, maybe the uh, research that, that she identified to support their claims. The plaintiffs here actually know what the algorithm is that Facebook or TikTok is using? No, I don't think so, but, but they, they know it exists based on this testimony. We, we all know that these exist, but that algorithms, that the algorithms exist, um, but they have more concrete uh, evidence that they knew that it was resulting in, in, in this kind of bad and upsetting behavior and sometimes uh, I don't know that they I don't know that Facebook itself uh, correlated their what they're doing their algorithms with suicide but they knew it had ill effects on teenagers so so they have that and so while they may not have the actual algorithm itself I think the idea is that they can get past the hurdles that have previously shielded these companies to get in and get discovery right pretrial information gathering and exchange information to try to get a hold of, you know, those algorithms in a more meaningful way to analyze them. Is it sort of hard to make the leap here? For example, most children don't get addicted and have bad outcomes. And for example, the body shaming aspect of it, if it were in social media, it might be fashion magazines or TV. Isn't it hard to make the leap that it's because of social media? Well, exactly. I mean, you put your finger on what I think is going to be the most difficult problem to get around. So in this type of suit that has, you know, that is different because it's identified the algorithm and not just the content, you know, YouTube is is oftentimes a defendant in, in these suits. Google, I think it is, said that there are products out there that are potentially addictive and potentially harmful if they're abused or overused. You know, you could give age-old examples of television or shopping, 
Right. And just because th- those exist out there doesn't mean that any one of them can be targeted as the cause of any individual, any particular individual's suicide or depression. And you put your finger on, I think, kind of the central defense. I think another thing that may come up is it's up to the parents to tell their kids, you know, you can have this much time on social media a day and you can't go past it, sort of monitor their children. Did you ask Mrs. Majewski about that? You know, I, I did put that question to her because, I mean, that's a question you have to ask. And, and, and she was she was aware. It, it was terribly upsetting. I mean, she she was reliving the experience as we were talking. But, but she said something that was really interesting to me. I, don't, I think anybody who has kids who are on a phone can see kind of the trouble that they can get into very quickly. You can just see the addictive power of what's going on. And so she she said something that was really interesting to me. There's a quote in the story, the Business Week story I wrote. She said to me, because what she did was she looked at the phone. She went back and looked at the phone. She looked at what her daughter was looking at. And she didn't think that she was spending an inordinate amount of time. I don't know, you know, exactly how many hours those are. And I think that's part of the problem is a lot of parents don't know, you know, if you're not really monitoring the actual phone itself, you don't know how many hours they're spending. But along with investigators, she was able to look at the phone, look at the hours, look at the content, and she didn't see anything. There was nothing to her that stood out as like, this is really troublesome or troubling or or should have been to her. And, And what she said was, though, she said, as parents, we're not seeing what they are seeing. And then also, as a parent, was just intuitively powerful to me because I do get the feeling with my own children, for example, that they're just kind of processing this information differently than we are. I think that there's something to that argument and that if they can kind of get past the motion to dismiss, this attempt to throw this suit out and can get into the research, I think that she's on to something with that. There's something to that that I think could, could be a powerful argument. You write that another hurdle for plaintiffs in these cases is establishing that algorithms should be treated just like other defective products. Tell us about that. This kind of argument has been, you know, most associated with, for example, tobacco, right, or car manufacturers, you know, defective products. And so the suit treats the algorithm as, as, as that, as something like, tobacco that was known to be harmful to cause cancer by by tobacco companies or a part in a car. And so that's what the suits are doing. They're identifying the algorithm as, as essentially a kind of product that's defective and known to be defective and used anyway. So that's how the lawsuit is kind of framing the algorithm. So with all this, you know, there's been a lot of negative publicity. Are any of these platforms doing anything to try to change things or, you know, for public relations purposes at least? Well, yes. I mean, you can if you, you can see on on the internet even on just websites, you know, not the not the platforms themselves, you can where you can definitely find it, but on on various websites, I I myself have just seen this. I think probably because I'm writing about it and my internet usage is being monitored and and advertising tailored to me, but you can see the companies are hinting at and advertising their own programs for parents to get more informed and for kids to also be more informed and, you know, understand what's going on, what's good and bad, and how to, you know, moderate your own behavior or your children's behavior. You know, those strike me as kind of predictable things to do. 
predictable responses. On both sides of the political spectrum, there is deep uh, unhappiness and concern about Section 230. And the left, the content that, that the left has targeted has been disinformation about vaccines or the outcome of the U.S. election or the January 6th attacks. But on the on the right, too, politicians, including uh, Donald Trump, have pointed to you know, an alleged bias of Silicon Valley companies against conservative views and, and Trump himself. There's deep unhappiness with Section 230, but the, the companies uh, have long, since their beginnings, have pointed to it as a really critical uh, law in order to preserve kind of the well-being and the, and the vibrancy of the Internet. And that without it, if they can be sued for the content that they're providing or they're putting up, they're just, you know, they argue they're just connecting users with the content. If they can be sued for that, they argue, well, then that just dims the Internet maybe to the point of, they would argue, non-existence. These could, the companies have argued that Section 230 is, you know, a fortress. But should you somehow see that it, it doesn't provide the defense that they need, then they argue, you know, alternatively, well, let's just look at the First Amendment. And on First Amendment grounds, we can't be sued for providing this content. Well, it's certain that we'll be hearing a lot more about these cases. Thanks, Joel. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Joel Rosenblatt. Coming up next. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. You need a company with extensive experience in specialized insurance. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and helping provide coverage that suits your needs. The Hartford offers insurance solutions that help mid to large sized businesses like yours effectively manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers comp and more. With extensive experience in underwriting, risk engineering services and claims, The Hartford goes beyond the expected to deliver innovative, customizable solutions and service that your industry, that your business demands. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? 
That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The biggest penalties against U.S. banks for record-keeping lapses. Regulators reach settlements with a dozen banks, bringing total penalties to more than $2 billion. After a sprawling investigation into how global financial firms failed to monitor their employees' communications on unauthorized messaging apps. Joining me is securities law attorney Robert Heim, a partner at Tartar, Krinsky & Drogan. This is a stunning amount of fines. What did these banks do that was illegal? It really is, June. It's a very big announcement from the SEC, and it centers around the bank's failure to preserve electronic communications that their employees engaged in that related to work. And under the federal securities laws, broker-dealers and other regulated entities have obligations to preserve all business-related communications. And what the SEC found was that, according to the settlement papers, there was widespread ignoring of that rule by these 16 firms that settled with the SEC. The SEC categorized their conduct as pervasive. And not only that, it wasn't just regular line employees that were using personal devices for business communications, but it was senior executives, the very people that were responsible for implementing these policies were also ignoring them. In some cases, managers even texted with employees in charge of ensuring that banks comply with the law. So it could be that none of these texts were over improper conduct. It was just record keeping? According to the SEC settlement documents, it really was just record keeping. In some instances, the SEC says that the failure of the firms to preserve the employees' business-related communications hampered their investigations, but they don't really say any specifics about how it was hampered or whether any sort of key evidence was lost as a result of the firm's misconduct. And so it's hard to judge really whether any critical evidence may have been lost, but it just reinforces the SEC's position that proper record keeping as required in the law is something that they're going to take very seriously. It seems like an awful lot of money over improper record keeping if there was no allegation of other misconduct connected to the record keeping. Yes, absolutely it does. This was uh, by far the largest fine for firms uh, not abiding by the record keeping rules, which require them to save and archive employee communications like emails or texts, even when those communications occur on their personal devices. And that's really what this settlement focuses on, is employees who, in this day and age, working remotely, and many firms have bring-your-own-device policies to work. Under the securities laws, firms have an obligation to capture and save any business-related communications, which you know can be very challenging in this environment. But the SEC justified these large fines. Some firms paid up to $125 million to settle these cases by just noting how long-lasting this conduct was going on for and how much involved in the misconduct was the senior officers of these banks. So regulators want to be able to track every message, every email, every text. Do a few messages really matter in the broad scope of things? It's 
really hard to say. Um, certainly, the SEC and other regulators want firms to preserve every single business-related communications, whether they occur on the, the bank's uh, own internal email systems or whether those business communications occur on personal devices. And it raises a lot of questions because, you know, employees have privacy concerns, too, because if they're using their phones both for personal communications with family members and also with business colleagues, it can be very challenging for uh, the banks and employers to be able to separate those two types of communications and really just capture and save the business-related communications. The Bank of America had the biggest penalty, $100 million. How did they allocate the fines? Was it dependent on the number of communications that were missed or the people who missed them? Yeah, the SEC didn't specify in detail how they allocated the fines because, as you noted, some firms paid significantly more than others. There was a total of 16 firms uh, that settled with the SEC, and some paid as low as $10 million and some paid over $100 million. And generally speaking, that's going to be a function of how widespread the conduct was at the firm uh, and the degree that senior people were involved in it. But the SEC also takes into consideration the size of the firms and their ability to pay in order to have the proper deterrent effect without, you know, perhaps jeopardizing the firm's uh, financial condition. How do banks monitor this in the future? You mentioned the proliferation of messaging apps and, you know, employees texting on their personal phones. I mean, how do they monitor it? Yeah, that's the big challenge for banks and other firms that have these record-keeping obligations because you have apps like Snapchat that delete messages shortly after they're sent. We have Telegram, we have WhatsApp, and there's many, many different devices, and they often are not very easy to sync with an employer's mainframe computer and standard compliance systems. And it's still very much a developing area, and what employers have done under these settlements, many of them have had to retain compliance monitors. And one of the jobs of the compliance monitor is to begin interviewing the employees at the firm to see how widespread of a practice there is to use personal devices for business communications and then to help the firms come up with technology and other solutions to try to capture these. Some firms are even going into the area of banning employees from using personal devices for business communications because of all these technical challenges in archiving business communications. Do you know of any firms that have just said you can't use your personal devices at work? Nobody's come out specifically to say that at this point, but it may be heading in that direction depending on whether firms can overcome the technology challenges and the privacy concerns of employees using their devices. One issue is even if employers ban employees from using these types of apps, how can the firm actually make sure that that is happening and being followed? Because that's still going to require the firm to look at employees' personal devices to make sure they're not using these prohibited apps. So there's not a easy solution, and firms are working through the privacy implications and the technology implications of, of trying to comply with record-keeping rules that actually date back to the 1930s when the securities laws were first passed that you know, obviously couldn't anticipate the proliferation of these types of text messages and digital communications. Bankers and brokers often complain that they're much more closely regulated than executives 
in other industries. Well, that's certainly a true statement. Finance, particularly in banking and brokerage activities, is a highly regulated industry, and they've been subjected to these heightened record-keeping requirements for a long time. What's very interesting is the Department of Justice is also now getting involved in this area. About a week ago, the Department of Justice issued their own memo saying that companies who want to get cooperation credit when criminal conduct is discovered have to be prepared to turn over personal uh, device communications of employees that relate to business matters. So there's definitely an effort by regulators and by the Department of Justice to expand these types of heightened record-keeping provisions to other industries where there's no legislation or statutory requirement um, those provisions be implemented. Talk a little bit about why particularly the Department of Justice wants companies to keep track of this. Oftentimes, you know, you find they build their cases based on text messages and formerly based on emails, but I guess text messages are the the current wave. Yes, text messages and emails and other forms of electronic communications have been a very helpful and fruitful source of evidence that prosecutors have obtained to help make their cases in many instances. A lot of times employees have their guards down and they're talking um, over text and over email in ways that they may not do in in a more formal setting. So these types of electronic communications have been very fruitful for prosecutors in terms of providing evidence of wrongdoing. And as a result of these new apps like Telegram and WhatsApp, where they're encrypted messages or they're they're automatically deleted, it's been very challenging for prosecutors to really get that same type of evidence um, in, in recent years. And they're very concerned about that. And these apps have presented a big challenge for prosecutors in kind of going after and getting the smoking gun communications that are often very helpful in making high-profile cases. Yeah, the Justice Department said it's going to put more emphasis on whether companies, as you said, hand over employee digital communications when the department is considering leniency for cooperation. But with some of these apps, the messages are gone. So handing over the device doesn't help, does it? Right. This is uh, putting companies in oftentimes a very difficult bond because uh, what the Department of Justice is often expecting is an enforcement of a policy that just isn't enforceable. Um, And when apps are deleting automatically communications and not storing them, you know, many apps like WhatsApp and others don't have central servers where subpoenas can be issued to, to get you know, messages that were deleted. And it's very challenging. The messages just aren't there. And that's by design for some of these encrypted communication apps. Um, They just don't save any messages. Under this new directive, will it be enough for companies to just have a policy? Or is there going to have to be some kind of compliance program? In the Department of Justice's view, having a policy is just the first step, and they're going to require much more from companies in terms of not just having the policy, but also training the employees and regularly updating the employees on the requirements. And in some situations, having software or other types of third-party IT companies working with the companies to make sure that business-related communications that are happening on personal devices are being captured and archived by the company. And the Department of Justice is kind of coming at this through the back door 
whereas the SEC is operating under a statutory scheme that requires companies to preserve these types of communications, there is no similar statutes in many other industries, and the Department of Justice is saying, well, we're going to use our ability to give cooperation credit to companies to really encourage them, and in some cases probably has the effect of requiring them to archive business communications, even though there's no legal requirement for the companies to do that. You know, I'm wondering what it's like, you know, for banks or companies when dealing with changes in policy due to a change in administration. And then you know that perhaps in two years, it'll be a different policy in a different administration. So all you've done may be for naught. Yes, we've seen these flip-flops quite often, you know, now that the Biden administration is um, underway and Chairman Gensler at the SEC is looking to to make his mark and prosecute more uh, corporations, there's certainly been somewhat of a sea change in terms of what's expected of companies compared to the prior administration. And even uh, before this, in the area of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which deals with foreign bribery, there's been flip-flops there, too, where first the Department of Justice required companies to go out and to turn over employee communications, and then there was a change when the new administration came in and scaled that policy back. So, yes, this is not something that's new. When new administrations come in and change expectations, it has a profound effect on companies, particularly in regulated industries. Thanks, Bob. That's Robert Heim, a partner at Tartar, Krinsky & Drogan. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcasts law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.